Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Patrick Radden Keefe, a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of one of the most gripping books I've read lately, titled Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. It tells the story of the family behind Purdue Pharma and OxyContin, aka the family that helped create an opioid crisis that's killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and got rich off it. The Sacklers seemed a lot like any wealthy family, steeped in infighting, lavish vacation homes, and museum donations that spread the family name and fed their egos. Yet their role in helping the nation get hooked on opioids is the story of a particular kind of greed. It's a story where the bad guys and gals get away with it because the Sacklers were never truly held to account. And it's a story particularly close to my heart as I had a family member who for decades struggled with an opioid addiction herself. So I wanted to ask Patrick about how the Sacklers amassed and abused their power and whether he thinks they'll ever really be held to account for all of the lives they've ruined. Patrick Radden Keefe, welcome to Sway. It's great to be with you. So I want to talk about this. I hate these people. I just, I'm so (laughs) mad after reading your book, like from the very first pages. I literally want to reach through the book and nothing violent, but thinking violence. You know what Uh I mean? Like, I was so angry at the attitude and everything else. And what I thought, interesting, I want to start on this. The word, I think, for these particular Sacklers, because there's several branches which you outline in the book, was the Oxy-Sacklers, correct? Yeah, there's one branch of the family that was, it did not have a stake in the company at the point where OxyContin was introduced. And so they said, you know, you shouldn't talk about the Sacklers broadly, you should talk about the Oxy-Sacklers. The Oxy-Sacklers. Um, so I appreciate that you focus on the perpetrators, which I think was really interesting. It's often about, you know, the impact of what they've done. I'm just curious, and I know it's a crazy question to start, but why are they not being prosecuted? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, this was one of the questions in my mind when I started this project was that you, it wasn't news that there were obviously a lot of pharmaceutical companies involved in selling prescription opioids, but that there was this one company that played this special role. And it wasn't really news that the company was a privately held company owned by this one family and that they'd made billions of dollars. But until a few years ago, it really didn't seem like it had caught up with the Sacklers. I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, I think they were pretty skillful in their PR in terms of um, kind of painting themselves as one thing when in fact they were another. But I also think in terms of accountability, our system is kind of rigged in favor of corporate actors who do bad things. So in this case, you have a family that owned the company. They made billions of dollars from it. They dominated the board of directors. You know, I quote emails from more than one CEO to board members saying, you have to let me do my job. Like, you're so interventionist. I can't even really run this company because the family is so intent on running it. 
And yet there's no accountability. And I, I, I just think it's, it's part of the way these things go. The company, Purdue Pharma, has pled guilty to federal criminal charges twice. But they pleaded guilty to lesser charges, correct? I mean, they were pretty significant charges. I think the thing that's interesting is that they, the first time around in 2007, you had these three executives who pled guilty to misdemeanors, but the company pled guilty to a felony. And then more recently, at the end of the Trump administration, you had another guilty plea by the company, but no individual executives were even charged. So I think that's kind of the trend, you know, even beyond this story, right, is that a company can behave badly, people can benefit from it. And no individuals are going to face any real accountability. Like, hello, subprime mortgages and banks. Things like that. The firm pays a fine and the people who were in the driver's seat get off scot-free. What drew you to this story of the Sackler family? You wrote an article in 2017, which, of course, grew into this book. The first book was way back in 2003, Painkiller by Barry Meyer, which clearly pointed out these issues, government acquiescence, medical complicity, high-priced lawyers and lobbyists and things like that. Yeah, this is part of what was crazy for me is when I started work on this in 2016, 2017, Barry Meyer's book at the time was out of print. Like if people had listened to Barry Meyer in 2003, I think there would be tens of thousands of people alive today who aren't. So it wasn't that people weren't sounding the alarm. It was that the Sacklers had been very skillful uh, in terms of making court cases go away, in terms of burying the record, in terms of giving money to fancy institutions and kind of cultivating this reputation as these big philanthropists. For me, it's like a question about the way people tell stories. So a lot of the time in books or articles about the opioid crisis, the Sacklers would be one strand, but you'd have a story of like a doctor and a story of a, you know, a prosecutor and a story of the cheerleader uh, who you know, gets injured at the big game and gets prescribed OxyContin. And I feel as though the Sacklers were kind of able to hide in those types of stories. So people would acknowledge, yes, there was this family and they owned the company and they benefited but, you know, it was it reminded me of like being a kid in the school play and you're villager number three and you're kind of standing on the corner of the stage hoping, hoping nobody notices, notices you. you. Yeah, except you've got the pitchfork and you're killing everybody, right? right? right. Exactly. <laughs> and that was essentially where, where we were. And what so what I wanted to do was kind of tell a slightly different kind of story where there's no place to hide. Yeah. What happened to change things? Um, they suddenly have become more focused on them. What do you think happened to change that? I think it was a handful of things. I mean, uh, you know, my piece in 2017, I think, helped. There was a piece in Esquire that came out uh, at around the same time that I think helped. Um, One of the big tipping points was actually Nan Golden, the photographer who has this kind of interesting story. She's one of the great American photographers. She has a background in activism during the AIDS crisis, but she also was addicted to OxyContin. So I published that story in late 2017. She got in touch with me. We met up downtown in New York City for tea. And she said, I'm going to start a movement. I want to get all the museums to take the Sackler name off the walls. And I I really did not take her seriously. I thought it sounded, I don't know, I thought she was tilting at windmills. I didn't think she was going to be able to do it. But she really did start a movement. Yeah, the, the group is called Pain. It's called Pain. And shortly after that meeting I had with her, they kind of stormed the Met and had a big protest there. They did one at the Guggenheim. They went to they London. Threw they threw pill Paris. bottles in the fountain. I remember that. Exactly. But it worked. It took a while, right? But just about a month or six weeks ago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art took down the Sackler name where it had been on the walls for half a century. So let's talk a little bit about the background of the Sacklers. Um the pharma industry isn't exactly known for ethics, and yet Purdue and Sackler family distinguished themselves with aggressive marketing and working every inch of leeway that laws and regulations gave them, and really good marketing. And it started with Arthur Sackler on Valium advertising. 
that branch of the family broke off, but it still, it sort of set the playbook for what would come later. Right, exactly, exactly. I thought of this book not as an opioid crisis book, but as a, a kind of a family saga. So the first third of the book is devoted to this guy, Arthur, who dies in 1987 before OxyContin is introduced. But Arthur, Arthur sort of invented medical advertising as we know it today. And he sort of figured out that it's really not the consumer who matters so much as the doctor. You need to seduce the doctor who's writing the prescription. So he's this kind of Don Draper figure for medical advertising in the 1950s. And he makes his first great fortune on Librium, kind of a predecessor to Valium, and at the time was the biggest best-selling drug in the history of the industry, and then Valium, which soon overtakes it. But part of what's interesting to me about Arthur is he's you know, on the deepest level, this is a story about the hijacking of medicine by commerce. And Arthur was the guy who was just right at the forefront of that. He's a practicing physician. He does research, but he's also in medical advertising. He also owns a pharmaceutical company. He also owns a series of medical newspapers that carry pharma advertising and are given free to doctors. He's just, it's conflicts of interest all around. Which he perfected. What did they understand that other bigger pharmaceutical companies didn't? Well, I think there were a few things. I mean, Purdue Frederick, this company that they own, for decades, it sells these kind of humdrum over-the-counter products. You know, like they had an earwax remover. They had an antiseptic solution. They weren't really pioneering new drugs. And then in the 80s, they have this painkiller. They move into the treatment of pain. And it's a morphine drug called MS Contin. And it was primarily used for cancer pain. And it was really successful. But what they noticed with that was that they were kind of limited to the cancer market because there was a stigma that people had around morphine. If you found out that your grandmother was going on morphine, it meant she was going to die. Yeah, or else it sounded like you were in like, you know, some weird den of iniquity or something like that. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, no, but that's the thing, because there was this notion that these drugs were really powerful and that they were addictive. And they did have a history of causing addiction in people. So they had the successful cancer drug. And then what happened was it was going to go off patent. And they're wondering, well, how can we replace it? And they came up with this idea of a big oxycodone pill. So oxycodone is another opioid, just means they're both derived from the opium poppy. It's actually much stronger than morphine. But this was their kind of big innovation is they realized when they did focus groups that doctors thought it was weaker. And there are these incredible emails where these senior executives at the company say, well, there's only so many people have cancer pain and we want to target a much bigger market chronic pain, sports injuries, you name it. There's tens of millions of people who could potentially be customers. Their original tagline for OxyContin, it's amazing to look back at this, is they said it's the one to start with and the one to stay with. So it's not the thing you reach for when other stuff fails. It's like the first course of treatment. Right. And, uh, you know, my I was going to say my brother, who's an anesthesiologist, he got very excited when he heard I was talking to you. Um, when they moved it out of cancer pain suffers, my brother noted it's a brilliant marketing move, but set the stage for widespread availability and addiction in that you moved it to a wider population of people when you moved it from MS Cotton to OxyContin, uh, which was kind of genius in that regard, except for the results of it, obviously. I mean, the other thing that Purdue did was they targeted general practitioners who were not expert in the treatment of pain. And so you had this community of physicians who are very smart and good at what they do, but don't know a whole lot about pain treatment, much less addiction. And then this army of sales representatives who basically fanned out across the country, you know, not just buying lunch for doctors, but entertaining them and setting up a speaker's bureau where they paid doctors to give speeches to other doctors and said, listen, we have this amazing silver bullet. It's got virtually no side effects. It's not addictive. What they said again and again was it's addictive less than 1% of the time. And it's good for what ails you. Right. One of the things that was interesting was this suddenly became this idea that nobody should ever 
be in pain. Yes. And listen, I think there was some truth to that. I mean, I actually think that early on, there were some people who very sincerely had a critique and, and a valid critique that, you know, pain wasn't really taken seriously enough, that we were kind of asking people to grin and bear it. But what was interesting was that you got a generation of physicians who said, we need to be prescribing more opioids. That's the answer. And then the industry comes along and says, we are going to just turbocharge that message. Absolutely. I remember when I had a C-section in 2002, they prescribed oxycodone. I said, no, I, I don't want it at all. And they gave me a giant bottle of it, even though I declined it. And I said, I prefer Advil. And I'm not, I want to be in pain all the time, but I, my aunt had a very serious addiction to Percocet. And um, I remember her calling me totally strung out. She was completely addicted. She was a doctor herself. And it was really, I, it terrified me of addictive drugs like that. So I declined, but they shoved it at me. It was fascinating to watch. And I was like, my aunt has an opiate addiction. I'm not taking any of these things. Well, and I think if it was 2002, I mean, a lot of doctors hadn't woken up yeah, yet no. to the reality. And I, listen, I mean, I think a lot of people who've gone for surgery or gone for some minor procedure and been given a prescription for a month's supply. Um, so what, Oxycontin is not the only opiate out there, but what was different about Oxy from your perspective? Only because it was marketed better or that it was the slow release idea? Why did it become the drug that's so obviously linked to the opioid crisis? So there were a handful of things. The first is that when we talk about Oxycontin, the content stands for continuous. And with that earlier drug, the morphine drug, they had come up with this slow release seal, which basically says, okay, so you can give somebody a big dose of a drug. And if they take the pill, it'll slowly release into their blood system over the course of 12 hours, right? And the idea was also that that would mean that it wasn't addictive. This was not, they had no real scientific basis for believing this. It was more conjecture. But so you ended up with this kind of perfect storm where on the one hand, you get these huge doses. So they had a 160 milligram pill. And the idea was you can take a pill that's that massive because it's your body's going to absorb it over 12 hours. And then what they did in the marketing was they said, the reason you should, you know, doctors should prescribe this and not the other stuff is that because of the slow release, it won't be addictive, that it's less prone to abuse than other drugs. Now, this turned out to not be true. And ironically, there was a warning label on the early bottles. They would come with a warning that said, whatever you do, don't crush the pills. Because if you do, you'll get a massive immediate dose of oxycodone. Hello. Yeah. Which is like, it functions as a warning for one kind of person and a how-to for another, right? So those were, I mean, I think in combination, you ended up with all these different factors. So there's more of it. It's easy to abuse by crushing it, correct? Yes. And it's ubiquitous, mm -hmm. I should say. There are people who took OxyContin and take it today and don't have problems. I hear from these people all the time, and, and I think it's important to emphasize that because I think part of the reason the Sacklers were able to remain as diluted as they were is that they were getting letters from people saying, hey, you gave me my life back, right? Then there's a second category of people who were deliberately abusing the drug. This is the kind of hillbilly heroin idea, right? That it's a strong opioid. If you crush it and snort it uh, or shoot it, that you can get an immediate release of, of all that oxycodone. And then there's a third category of people that the Sacklers and Purdue really, to this day, don't like to talk about, which is people who take it exactly as the doctor ordered and find themselves getting addicted. Right. And that's a lot more people than they realize. So Purdue took advantage of a lot, for lack of a better word, loopholes, and they want to go in a lightning round of these. Um, tell me how the Sacklers took advantage of these. A, speedy approval by the FDA. Why did they, why did it sail through so quickly? 
listen, I think there were some true believers inside the FDA who believed that opioids should be more widely prescribed. I also think that there's a coziness between people at the FDA and industry that leads to a kind of regulatory capture. And in, in the specific egregious case of OxyContin, you get this fellow, Curtis Wright, who was the main regulator in charge. He approves OxyContin. He approves these bogus marketing claims. And then he goes and works at Purdue for three times his government salary. And David Kessler, oops. He sort of said oops, right? Yeah, it's funny because David Kessler was running the FDA at the time. And he is on record as saying that the kind of huge destigmatization of opioids that we're talking about is one of the great mistakes of modern medicine. Um, so there's that. It's a passive voice. Yeah. I, and I, I asked him about it and he said he had nothing to do with the... Mistakes were made by someone made. who right, was running right. the FDA. But look, I mean, it's kind of analogous to what I was saying about the corporations where like Purdue Pharma pled guilty in 2020 to criminal charges, paid a big fine, and no executives... It's not just that no executives are charged. No executives were named. We talk about like a government bureaucracy or a corporation as if it's a driverless car, as if there's no human beings actually making the decisions. Next one, lawyers like Mary Jo White, which is a huge disappointment. The line you had, which I thought was great in the very beginning of the book, was you spend the first half of your career going after the bad guys, which she did, and the second half representing them. Yeah, so so Mary Jo White was a famous uh, prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. She was Obama's head of the SEC, but she was also... um, she was just somebody who, as a woman in the law, like broke a lot of glass ceilings. Tough. Super tough. Small woman. Yeah, very, very small, but very heroic. And then, you know, became sort of a hatchet woman for the Sacklers in Purdue. And she's been doing that, you know, over the last 15 years. And she's not alone, right? I mean, I talk about Rudy Giuliani, who went and mm-hmm. worked for them. I talk about Eric Holder. To me, part of what I wanted to get at in this story is you have one family that behaves very badly. And I think a lot of people read the book and like you, they feel a sense of anger and a sense of kind of indignation, like how could they get away with this? And the answer to me is that they're surrounded by these like professional enablers who, for whatever reason, the stench that does attach to the Sacklers often doesn't attach to the people who keep them in business. Because there's this idea that if you're, if you're better call Saul, you know, you're sort of a little devil may care, a little disreputable. But if you're Mary Jo White, you know, everybody's entitled to a good lawyer. And there's the sense of it has nothing to do with me, really. The kind of underlying sin. It's my job. Yeah, it's my job. Yeah, right. What about wooing doctors with meals and end with swag? My brother talked about this a lot. Um, talk about that. They had a $9 million budget for paying doctors for duty. Oh, the $9 million budget was just to buy food, food. for doctors. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the thing for me is, if you go back to Arthur Sackler, the original kind of patriarch, he had this idea that doctors are like priests, they're like rabbis, they're, they're kind of incorruptible. All they care about is the treatment of the patient. And if that's the way your profession regards itself, I think you're a very easy mark. You know, in the case of Purdue, I've talked to all these doctors who were like, oh, you know, you could buy me a nice dinner and it's not going to change the way I prescribe. Like, don't be ridiculous. I'm a professional. I'm thinking about my patients. But of course, I've seen the other end of that, which is the internal emails where they're like, let's look at the return on investment on every dollar we spend on food. Uh, not just dinner, but like expert testimony. They had the Speakers Bureau. I mean, it's like a self-licking ice cream cone. You get, you know, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of doctors who get paid to give speeches to other doctors who are also there for free so that everybody can hear about how undertreated pain is and how OxyContin is the solution. Right, which is set up by Purdue. So talk a little bit about that claims, like one that OxyContin was not addictive, um, and they all, of course, turned out to be false. 
Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the, it's like the con game is that you get this official looking literature and you get these pharmaceutical sales reps who are heavily incentivized to try and get doctors prescribing bigger doses for longer periods of time. And they go out there. Yeah, there was this thing that they talked about, like some landmark study that turned out to be this brief little letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine that the guy who wrote it has since kind of disowned. He said, I I was appalled to think that they would use it to sell this drug in this way. Bogus marketing, right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But you see that again and again and throughout, right, this kind of assertion, particularly after people started dying. So there must be something wrong with the people, right? Absolutely. That's the big pivot. For a while, they kind of put their heads in the sand and pretended nothing was happening. And then eventually you have so many people dying and ODing that it's impossible to deny. And then they said, oh, well, the problem isn't the drugs. The problem is the people. And they're criminals. And they're misusing. They're criminals. And if they weren't abusing OxyContin, they'd be abusing something else. And um, listen, I very strongly disagree with that. And I think it's self-serving and baloney. But I also think that it's that's an incredibly resonant thing to argue in our culture where we have a really, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? This is a, this is a, we live in a very libertarian economy and there's a sense that you can create something that is bad. Mm -hmm. And addictive. Often, you know, addictive or, or whatever, but can really hurt people, can kill people. And you can put it out in the world and get rich on it. And if there's somebody else after it leaves your hands who makes some decision, it's all on them. It's not on you. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, it plays into family dynamics. I remember um, thinking it was my aunt's fault. You know, she couldn't get off of it. And then it was the pharmacist's fault because we used to find bottles and bottles. She prescribed for herself. She was a pediatrician. And it was crazy that the pharmacist gave, I was like, we went around to all the pharmacies and like, hey, you know, 400 pills for a pediatrician is Doesn't really crazy. Sense. But yeah. in a lot of ways, we blamed her versus the, the pharmacist because like you couldn't control herself. She could never get off of it. It does play into, they have a weakness of some sort. I remember thinking that. And even to this day, I was, you know, something's off that they couldn't get off of it. Yeah. I mean, again, I think addiction is, it's such a complicated issue and it's one that we're all still wrestling with. And I feel as though in most families, we end up encountering it in some form or another. And I do think that there are these types of questions. One thing that certainly the four years or so I've spent working on this has brought home to me is that a lot of people just don't stand a chance. Right. You know, that to sort of suggest that it's all a, a matter of willpower is to overlook how profound the kind of chemical hold that these drugs can have on people. And overwhelming and easily available. It reminds me a little bit of misinformation. But the Sacklers really did lean into it, calling these people criminals, saying it was addictive personalities. When did it become clear to them that people were abusing Oxy? You have a really amazing section in the book about them looking online forums about how people were abusing it. And then the person who was doing the looking, the assistant, becomes addicted because of back pain and then gets fired because they couldn't deal with their job. It just was, of course. Yeah. I mean, to this day, their position is that it is vanishingly rare for people who take the drug as as directed by a doctor to become addicted. And I've thought a lot about this, that the, (laughs) you know, you would think if you were a billionaire that you'd get the best advice from the best people. And really, I think it's often actually the opposite, that the problem is that if you're surrounded by people whose livelihood depends on keeping you happy, you can just get more and more diluted. And so there were representatives of the Sacklers who were telling, you know, when I was finishing this book, they were saying, hey, it's vanishingly rare. And, you know, like there's a study that one insurance company did. Um, Over a period of years, they looked at people who were prescribed a Purdue opioid 
and then subsequently diagnosed, like they had a medical diagnosis of an opioid use disorder. So they said the number was in the hundreds of thousands. So like, that's not vanishingly rare. No, of course not. But the mental gymnastics of this family is really fascinating. But talk about that, that idea of why within the company, even the cigarette companies were aware and started to do sort of damage control. Why did this company not do that? Yeah. You know, I think some of this is that it wasn't a public company. It was a privately held company. And so the company was very much a reflection of the personalities involved. And in this case, there was a real tradition of just like, you know, give no quarter, like just fight and double down. And that was always the approach was kind of kill the messenger. If there were people who brought lawsuits or employees who raised issues or journalists who wrote critically about the company, they would just absolutely go after them like a ton of bricks. And yourself, correct? And that was true for me as well. Yeah. And I think as a consequence, you got into this weird situation where, I mean, I, you know, I interviewed dozens and dozens of people who worked at the company and with the Sacklers over all these years. And it's not like there weren't people who said to them, hey, you're giving all this money away. What if you took $100 million and put it in a foundation and said that you're going to help people with addiction, opioid use disorder, right, or addiction? And their perspective was, no, that would look like we're conceding that we ever did anything wrong. And then those people who kept raising it would get sidelined. And the people who said, you've never done anything wrong, you're just really misunderstood, would get promoted. And so today, the handmaidens to the Sacklers, the real sort of loyal people who are still around them, are people who say, this is a PR problem. The 20 of us in this room are the only ones who see things clearly. And everyone outside, like literally the company's in 3,000 lawsuits, the family's being sued by half of the attorneys general in the United States. You know, you've got my book, you've got a ton of press coverage, you've got academic studies. It just goes on and on and on. And they say, all of that is wrong. We're just really misunderstood. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Michael Pollan, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Patrick Radden Keefe after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my 
teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Let's talk about the lawsuits. Richard Sackler, who ran Purdue for years, who seems literally like Voldemort, I'm not really clear, has not ever given any interviews. Thanks to depositions, uh, we have some information. Talk about him a little bit, because he's, you know, the others just seem like jackasses, but this guy's got some cold ice right in the middle of something going on with him. So what was his strategy of not recognizing the harm? Business strategy, legal strategy, callousness, all of the above? So I, Richard's a fascinating guy. I mean, he, you know, his father had grown up poor in Brooklyn, but Richard is, you know, he's kind of to the manner born, right? Like he grows up rich. His first job is as assistant to the president at Purdue, Frederick, and his father was the president. And it's funny, I interviewed his college roommate and this guy described Richard before he'd ever gone into business as being this kind of somebody who had a certain charisma in that he was really smart. And he would develop a theory or an interest. And then he was just like a runaway train. He was all in on the idea. But also that he was just had very little empathy. It was very hard for him to kind of put himself into other people's shoes or see the negative externalities of his own behavior. And it's funny because decades later, you see exactly that, that he's this guy who's just like, his dream is OxyContin. It's his baby he's more closely identified with it than anyone. And at one point he's asking to go on ride-alongs with like sales reps. He wants to kind of go along and, and they're all really worried about it because they're clearly worried that he's going to start hand-selling OxyContin right, to right. whoever the doctors are. But I think it's somebody who's just, like you said, very cold, very clinical. It felt very sociopathic. It was like, yes. I'm no yeah. psychiatrist, but I was like, whoa. That's a word that came up again and again. Were you surprised that he continued to deny any? I was not, after reading your book, through any responsibility for the opioid epidemic when he testified in court. Were you surprised that none of them did? I mean, uh, so there's a couple of things, Even right? the Rockefellers broke. <laughs> you know, they all broke eventually. Eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that is maybe with enough time they will. I will say that I really thought that there would be some younger Sackler who says, I don't want the money. I don't want anything to do with it. And what I found is that you have these people who are like, they make documentaries or they're in film financing, the millennial Sacklers, and they all take the money and they all say, it has nothing to do with me. None of them are broken though. None of them are broken. No. And it, to the point where like, I got, there's a, there's a family WhatsApp of the Mortimer Sackler family where they're all going back and forth. They think it's private. At a certain point in the WhatsApp, somebody says like, hey, let's, let's not do this on email. You know, like, let's keep it on the WhatsApp. <laughs> Eventually, it got it got attached in a court filing, and I got it. Um, but even in that private zone, there's nobody who says, did we maybe do something wrong? They all just talk about it as a PR problem. So you came across the story in an odd way when you were covering narcos. Explain that, because the Sacklers remind me of the narco moguls. Yeah. So I, the, I came to this in this weird way, which is that I had been writing about the Mexican drug cartels. And in around 2010, you suddenly see a surge in Mexican heroin on the streets of the U.S. And initially, people couldn't really explain why it is that you would suddenly see more. So it turns out it's demand from American consumers who previously weren't people who used heroin, but they all had an on-ramp, which was OxyContin and other prescription opioids. What happens in 2010 is that Purdue Pharma reformulates OxyContin. So it's harder to crush. So it's basically like, it's like a gummy bear. It's impossible to turn it into a powder. Why 2010? 
So it turns out the patent on the original was about to run out. So they reset the patent. At that point, they go to the FDA and they say, we know we've been telling you for 14 years that the original version is safe, but it's actually not. So you shouldn't allow any generic companies to make a generic version of the one that we've been selling all this time. You should only be able to buy our like branded reformulated one. And I got this amazing study where they're looking at their own sales. Sales of the 80 milligram OxyContin pill dropped 25% virtually overnight, which tells you what? People were absolutely grinding it and abusing it. Those people then migrate to heroin. So this is this kind of broader story, which is prescription opioids lead to heroin. Heroin eventually leads to fentanyl. And what's interesting about the, of course, then there's the narco lords. I don't know what you call them in other countries that are criminals. I, I feel like the Sacklers are just them without guns. But it's kind of interesting that they actually are in jail. Uh, many of those yeah. people are in jail and prosecuted and pursued by the United States. Very aggressively. So speaking of that, in 2019, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey went after the family. The case listed eight Sacklers as defendants. How did that move the needle? This is after 20 years of litigation against Purdue Pharma. Hugely. I mean, earlier when you asked what changed, so I think one big thing that changed was Nan Golden. Another was Maura Healey. She did what nobody else had done, which is say, okay, we, everybody's going after the company, but what about this family? And about half of the states after her joined on and filed their own lawsuits against the family. And so that's what kind of got us to where we are today. It's not criminal charges. I think they probably won't get criminally charged. Mm -hmm. But you did have a lot of pressure on the family with these civil cases in a way that had never happened before. But this kind of funny thing happens, which is that um, they declare bankruptcy, which is, you know, OxyContin's generated $35 billion in revenue since 96. So how does Purdue declare bankruptcy? And the answer is that about a decade ago, the family started just quietly pulling money out of the company. Mm -hmm. And today they claim that it was just a coincidence. They just happened to do it. It wasn't that they knew that someday there would be a huge storm of lawsuits. And when that happened, they wanted all the money to be not in the company, but in their private accounts. But the result is that you get a situation where they kind of kick the company into bankruptcy and say it has no money anymore. But they had actually taken $10 billion out of the company before doing that. And then they offered money, which is $4.5 billion. Not as much of it would go to people who were hooked on OxyContin as others, as government and things like that. Um, this is in limbo now, this settlement that Maura Healy worked on, correct? It is, um, but I think we can kind of see the broad outlines of where it's going to go. So, you know, the weird thing about this case is that it, it ends up in bankruptcy court, which is a strange place to settle the, the question of the culpability of this family and this company in a huge public health crisis. But bankruptcy court is all transactional. So basically what the family said was, there's a number that we will pay and we will pay it if you give us immunity from any future suits. If all these lawsuits against us go away and we don't have to be looking over our shoulders the rest of our life. And so what happened was the judge signed off on that. The number was $4.5 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, but I think is arguably not. They're paying it out over nine years. They have an $11 billion fortune. They can just pay it with the returns on their fortune. And a federal judge in New York reviewed that and said, eh, this isn't really legit. You know, you shouldn't be able to deny future litigants the right to bring these suits. No bankruptcy judge should be able to do that in the situation. So there's a mediator now and they're all talking. And I think that where this is going to come out is it'll still be a number. It'll just be a higher number. The Sacklers will be forced to pay more. But not go to jail. Nope. Not go to jail ever. Nope. I don't think so. Look, you have... uh... Uh, Elizabeth Holmes going to jail. Yeah. Didn't kill anybody. A fraud, but didn't kill anybody. Right. 
I mean, I think, listen, the Sackers have not been charged with anything. My, I think to some extent, this is a story about um, prosecutors who tend not to want to take on cases unless they're guaranteed they're going to win. And a big high profile case like this, nobody's going to take it on unless they know that they can really put them away. And I think if you have any uncertainty about that, particularly with federal prosecutors, there's a great book written about this uh, called The Chicken Shit Club, which kind of sums it up, right? Federal prosecutors are just very, very timid when it comes to bringing criminal charges against corporate executives. And that's going to be enough to you know, keep them sticking with these civil settlements. So what else is left for this? Do you think justice has been served? Not remotely, no. I, you know, I think that it's a great deal for the Sacklers. I think the one piece of good news is that there will be a huge document repository that comes out of this. They have to kind of give up their documents. And so I hope that we'll have a real public record of how this whole thing started. That doesn't feel like justice to me. I, I think in the case of the Sacklers, there's a little bit of a poetic irony, which is just that this is a family that was kind of relentlessly branding themselves. Yes, philanthropy. I was going to, I yeah. spent a lot of time in the Arthur M. Sackler or whatever, Asian of ours, a beautiful gallery, beautiful. beautiful donations from him. And I, I feel nauseous when I when I now think of how much time I spent there. And I was like, oh, look, this rich family gave money for this beautiful thing. Um, but they did that all over the place, all over the world. And just recently, as you said, the Sacklers have been coming off of a lot of places, but not not all of them. Not all of them. And, you know, Arthur Sackler's widow and his daughter have been saying, you know, we shouldn't take his name off because he wasn't one of the Oxy Sacklers. You know, he only made his money on Valium. The Valium Sacklers. Yeah, exactly. The, um, I thought it was I'm funny. Not liking that, the Valium Sacklers you have, anymore. You have the, the Valium Sacklers looking down their noses yeah. at their OxyContin cousins. But I, but I, listen, with this particular family, I think there's a little bit of a poetic irony there in that with another family that had cared less about emblazoning its name everywhere, it might be less painful to see it coming down. You know, that ain't justice, but I think it's as close as we're going to get. Yeah, they seem obsessed with that, with that idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my favorite example is when you go, if you go to the Tate in London, you can ride the Sackler Escalator. Like, there's nothing too small to put their name on. Are, are they coming off? Well, they'll put internet people on it next, but do you think most museums after these last few will cause them? I, th- I do think the Met was a bellwether. I know because I've talked to people at other institutions that they were watching the Met, and when the Met made that decision... I think there will be others that we will hear from other prominent institutions probably in the coming months. Right. It's really quite astonishing that they're still there. So last couple of questions. Um, Purdue worked the system, the FDA regulation, you know, is inadequate in lots of ways. Big tech is an area that I talk about a lot. How do you get regulation when these companies are making so much money and the fines are a drop in the bucket? I would sort of go back to what I said earlier. I think there needs to be, whether it's on the civil or better still, if there's criminal misconduct on the criminal side, I think there needs to be the threat of individual liability for individual executives. I think as long as you have a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that can, first of all, buy a ton of influence in terms of um, relationships with lawmakers, relationships with lobbyists, hiring the best lawyers, just this kind of influence juggernaut, to rig the system in its favor, I think it's very hard to create any real consequences when legislation is getting rewritten essentially to their specifications and when no individual feels like there will be any real penalty. Is the answer whistleblowers? You interviewed dozens of Purdue employees. Why wasn't there a whistleblower? Yeah, I just wrote this piece in The New Yorker and it was in part because I wondered, you know, it was like the dog that didn't bark, right? Like, why was there no whistleblower in this case? And... I think some of it was that it was ultimately a fairly small company 
with a lot of loyalty to the family. I think the whole ethos at Purdue, it was very the godfather. They were sort of like, if you're loyal to us, we'll be loyal to you. We reward loyalty and we punish disloyalty. And so there was one instance in which you got, she wasn't exactly a whistleblower, but you got a woman named Karen White, who was a sales rep, who basically she was fired. And the reason she was fired was that she had said, I don't want to be pitching the drug to these dodgy doctors. Uh, And they let her go. And she sued, not for any huge amount of money. She sued basically to get kind of made whole when they let her go. And um, they just absolutely crushed her. They just came after her with everything they had. And I think that probably people saw that sort of thing. And I mean, I tell the story in the book about how Barry Meyer was writing at the New York Times about Purdue and Purdue managed to get Barry taken off the story. They like went over his head at the Times and, and succeeded. So I think that probably in this case, people saw the retaliation and that that was part of it. Were you nervous in any way? I know you said there's you probably had detectives on you. I, you know, to be honest with you, I wasn't. There was an incident over the summer where I had somebody outside my house and um, in a car. There were legal threats of a sort that I'd never dealt with. I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of legal threats over the years, but I, this was just like a steady drumbeat for two years of legal threats. To me, it kind of comes with the territory. And particularly with the legal threats, I actually think it's such an amateur move now. I mean, I think this is the thing that struck me was, again, I was like, you're so rich and you have the benefit of such good counsel. They would send me all these legal threats and they would say like, off the record, not to be quoted. And of course, I'm like, I'm going to quote that. It's going right in the book, <laughs> you amateurs. You know, like, is this really the way you operate? You think that that's going to work? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I think that there's a sort of... Um, oh, it's happened to me. I'm sure. But the crazy thing is, I feel as though it does work with some people, which is why they keep trying the move. And when they try it and it doesn't work, they're kind of all out of moves, right? Right. Do you know how they reacted when the book came out? Yeah. I mean, I should say to be very clear, I tried really hard to talk to the family throughout the whole process. I sent them, you know, hundreds of queries for the family and the company and gave them an opportunity to comment. And they basically boycotted the whole thing. Around the time the book came out, they had a statement that they would send out, which is hilarious, where they would say, they would be like, we wanted to meet with him, but he refused to meet with us, which was just sort of, it was all kind of silly. But um, no, they've got, listen, they've gone quiet. They've gone quiet. And that's what they're hoping to do. Go quietly with their billions of dollars and pay some of them over to the uh, people, but not enough. And they'll still live in their houses and uh, do their weird version of succession for the rest of their lives, I guess. But they're not in the pharma business anymore, correct? No, that's right. So they gave up their interest in the company. And uh, fortunately for them, they have lots of money that they can invest in other industries. Yep. What an amazing book. This is a book I would recommend to everybody. It's a failure of every single aspect, not just the Sacklers, although please put them at the front and center. I'm glad you did. But it's the FDA, of the medical community, of our legal system, PR, everybody, just for money. And Patrick, Brad, and Keith, thank you so much. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuelewski. The senior editor of Sway is Naeem Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. 
If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a self-licking ice cream cone, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. And by the way, since we taped last week, the Tate has removed the Sackler name from that escalator and said it won't accept future donations from the family. I guess that's British for going down. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.